The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. We are starting a Facebook group. We would like to invite people to join our Noggins and Neurons Facebook group. It's a closed Facebook group, so what is said in the group stays in the group. We have the podcast in which Mm -hmm. we can take ideas that we learned on the Facebook page and express them on the podcast and take the stuff on the podcast and express it on the Facebook page. So Mm -hmm. I have a real symbiotic thing. We invite everybody. We invite therapists and survivors and caregivers and students. And it's a group to help each other. Yeah, absolutely. A big discussion group where we could talk about the best treatment for increasing gait speed. I mean, any technical stuff, and we'll try to chime in and and help you out, but we would hope that we would learn as much as anybody else does. Yeah, and even where people can get clarification on things, kind of like, you know, I seek sometimes. Yeah, we all do. Think if you're a survivor or a caregiver, then getting some insight into the therapy end of things and being able to advocate for yourself and knowing what to advocate for and helping us too, like helping us understand what it's like living with that injury, like the lived experience of it. And so we can maybe do better when we're delivering our services. I think it will be a nice community of people who are hoping to learn from each other and will feel confident sharing. I think maybe helping to do what we're hoping to do, affect change. Join up kids. It's the Facebook page. It's called Noggins and Neurons. In our previous episode of Noggins and Neurons, Pete and I talked about measuring spasticity. Before we started that conversation, though, we talked about a problematic current real-life scenario where OT discharged a patient who would still benefit from skilled OT. Pete mentioned our professional associations and the role in advocacy that doesn't really seem to be working. We learned that there is a time of day when spasticity isn't present, 
And Pete mentioned reasons why it's important to use spasticity measurement scales rather than just observation. I had to seek further clarification regarding spasticity, range of motion, and contractures. And yes, I've been an OT for over 20 years. And then we talked about the different spasticity measurement scales and how to perform them. Okay. So, hey, Deb. Hey, Deb. Okay, bye. See ya. Hey, that was good. <laughs> oh, God. All right. So, you ready? Okay. Am I recording? Say. I'm recording. I think you are. And I, I am. Too. Okay, great. So, I, d- I did look up downloads before we reconvened here tonight. We're over 5,500. So, it's saying something. I'm just not sure exactly what it's saying. And someday I hope to know. It's like reading tea leaves. But hmm. so what is this? What is today's episode about? Today's episode is, um, I love the name that you called it, sort of a state of the union episode. Because we have over 5,000 downloads. We've, how many episodes did we make so far? We've got 22 or 23 out there. I think it's 22. Could okay. be wrong. Well, you're probably right. We're going to talk about whatever the state of this union is. I think you're right. It's 23, not 22. Is it? Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, we are. And we have 122 followers. So I think those are the people that have taken the time to follow us through Podbean. So maybe that's a good place to start is um, we have no idea what any of these numbers mean. We don't even know if the download is only through Podbean's site or whether it's through all sites. Isn't that correct? We don't know that. Right? Yeah, I really don't understand the back end of this thing. Yeah, so the data doesn't really help us much if we don't know what it means, but there's at least 5,500 downloads through Podbean. So that's, that's probably a pretty good indicator. I think people are listening. I think they are too. The other thing is that it's becoming very clear to me that there are subjects that people are listening to more than other subjects. Do you have any sense of like what resonates more with whoever it is that's listening to us? Well, I sometimes look at these numbers, uh, the numbers of downloads, um, and they all have pretty high numbers. But the subluxation and shoulder pain had over 300. Mirror therapy has over 300 downloads. And so it, it makes me think there are certain interventions that people are interested in knowing about. And also Leading Edge OT with Doro and Lynette from NeuroHub Part 1, that one has 200. So I think uh, people are interested in what others are doing. That would be my first thought. What do you think about that? Yeah, the numbers for NeuroHub, the NeuroHub OT folks, Lynette and Doro, are pretty remarkable. But this does bring in a couple of countervailing things that will impact on the numbers. One is we do go to social media specifically Facebook, and we update people, hey, there's some new episodes. And so the timing of that could affect things. Mm-hmm. Because when they came on, one of the things they talked about was how they broke free of the chains of having to work under the rubric of managed care. They had this inspirational story about how they broke free from that and created their own thing so they could treat the way they wanted to. 
And I went specifically to a PTA Facebook group that has a lot of members mm-hmm. who often complain about the way things are going at work. And they ask continually, is there some way that we can break out of this? And because they spoke specifically to that, I immediately went to that Facebook group and said, hey, you should really listen to this because these guys kind of found a way out. Um, so there's there's things impacting that. The other thing about the NeuroHub OT folks is that they ha- it hasn't been up for very long. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just posted last week. So And as time goes on, you get more listeners. This is what I found were the bottom ones. I found the ones that were the bottom ones the most interesting because I think there is a trend. So one was stop falling. And mm-hmm. I can I think most of the people that listen to our podcasts are clinicians of the OT variety. I think there are, I know there are people that have had brain injury and caregivers listening as well, but just not as many. So when you have something that says stop falling, that clearly is an episode about how to reduce falls mm-hmm. or eliminate falls. And I can see clinicians saying, we get that every single day at work. Do we really have to have it when I'm driving to work? I get it. They shouldn't fall. I know what it is in terms of balance training. I know what it is in terms of a home evaluation to make sure that they don't fall. So yeah, so I don't need to listen to that one. The other one that didn't do really well, and I'm surprised about this a little bit, is um, is the one that had the stroke survivor. And I think that may also be because clinicians hear these stories every day because they're clinicians. And so they know the stories and they don't want to hear another story. I I would caution therapists to not do that too much with people that are successful because the people that go back to the clinic are people that were not successful. You keep seeing the same people over and over again because they're not getting better. It's the people who have gotten better that have the real message. And Mm -hmm. so it's the people that we lose track of that really tell us, inform us about the way that um, recovery happens, the hard work that that goes on. So those two, I just felt like were towards the bottom because they seemed like things that may have been more oriented towards survivors and less towards clinicians. Yeah, it could be. Could be. And you made some good points. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> so then, then the other one that didn't do real well was measuring recovery, which is surprising because, but maybe, you know, maybe the whole measuring recovery thing is just a little old with therapists. They're inundated with it at CU courses. They have the group of measurements that they do. Do they really need more? But but we, we thought that was a pretty important thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that you're mentioning that, I do think that it is the interventions where people not necessarily struggle, struggle. Maybe they do struggle with, you know, because things like subluxation and spasticity are hard, hard for us to wrap our heads around and know what to do. So maybe that's why they get more listens. Mm. The measuring recovery one was definitely geared towards survivors. What can you do that aren't like the Berg balance and the French A and the mm-hmm. Wolf Motor Function tests. What are tests that you can do at home to measure whether you're getting better or not? So maybe it's more oriented towards uh, survivors. Well, I would still suggest that that would be a good one for therapists, especially those people who are working in home care, whether it's direct home care or through like a mobile Part B practice, would be helpful because that's where you can be training people. And, and coming up with strategies with them so that they know how to get that measurement in place and make sure that they, like, 
establish that regular measurement schedule, make sure that they're still measuring the same thing, doing that consistently. So it seems kind of like more on the home program side of things. Yeah. So home care therapists, get on it. The other one that didn't do real well was TPA, tissue positive image activator, the clot buster. Mm -hmm. And I have a hypothesis about this. So unless you're in acute care, Mm -hmm. you really don't care about that stuff because they either got it or they didn't. And you were in acute care. So you had protocols that you had to deal with that were TPA protocols. And I could see maybe they'd be interested, but it Mm -hmm. kind of eliminates what 85%, 90% of all therapists. The other thing is that um, survivors may have said, oh, TPA. Yeah. Well, that ship has sailed, but here's a couple. Yeah. It may not have sailed. Right. Because you can get TPI in your second stroke, your third stroke. And if you have had a stroke, you have a good chance of having another significant stroke-like event in the future. So you might want to get on that a little bit so that everybody's in line with, look, if I ever, if that ever happens to me again, we got, this is where we go. Um, mm-hmm. This is what you're looking for. This is the fast test or the B fastest. Get me in there and, and well, they can do TPA the next time. And maybe it won't hit me as bad as the last stupid stroke did. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a good conversation to have with your neurologist if, if you've had a stroke. Just have that conversation so that your your medical team knows what your wishes and desires are. Hmm, that's an interesting one. Well, yeah, unless you have one of those neurologists that's afraid of using TPA, and those exist as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe at that point you should think about getting another neurologist. Yeah, just something uh, to throw out there. Just something to throw out there. Just throw some neurologists under the bus. There you go. <laughs> we'll throw them out. <laughs> we'll throw them under the bus. Well, that was one thing that came up when I was re-listening to some of the episodes today is, you know, as healthcare providers, sometimes it is a little intimidating to be a healthcare provider because, you know, the whole thing is to do no harm. And then you're afraid sometimes to make a decision because of the way people sue medical professionals. And, you know, I really don't want to throw anybody under the bus. I want to encourage people to be informed and have the courage to make decisions that will help others. Yeah, absolutely. And we went into that in that episode about how much more the hospital loses if they get sued for not doing TPA versus getting sued for doing TPA and making that mistake. Mm-hmm. And they get sued more for not doing it. It's one of the biggest, it's the biggest one in stroke that hospitals get sued mm-hmm. uh, for. Yeah. So that was the bottom group. That's the bottom four. Mm -hmm. And maybe we could talk about the top four next. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, the first one and the one that's garnered the most downloads for what it's worth is learn non-use. Yeah. So what do you want to talk about with regard to learn non-use? Why should people even listen to that one? Well, first of all, that's a really good episode because we talked about more than learn non-use in that episode. You went through the uh, four stages of recovery. So helping people to understand what's going on inside the brain immediately following stroke. You talked about the penumbra and um, we talked about spontaneous recovery too, and how it's really important to not take rehab away during that phase, because that's when people will experience um, significant improvements. Um, But we talked a lot about learned non-use, about what it is 
and how it happens and when it starts can start in the acute phase following stroke and how to prevent it and why it's important to be aware of that. We also talked about intensity, like what is too much too soon, because that's a concern that therapists often have. How much can we do immediately following a stroke? And so we established that something like mirror therapy is a good intervention to use in the acute phase, but constraint-induced therapy might be a little too much. Yeah. And then, of course, during the episode where we talked about what works and what doesn't work, constraint-induced therapy, they had pushed back to the late subacute phase. So let's say two months out to the chronic phase. And and I had suggested that if I have a stroke and I see you, Deb, about it, Stella, as that penumbra is coming back online during the subacute phase, I want some forced use kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, the learn non-use, the hyperacute, acute, subacute, and chronic, we went over that. Mm-hmm. And You know, can I just say the other thing in learn non-use is when people have impaired sensation, that feeds into it as well as a neglect can make it difficult as well to use that limb. And I think we mentioned that during the sensation recovery episode as well. And that is also on the top four or five yeah. downloads. Uh, Pete, you know, as long as we're talking about these top numbers, what was your favorite episode? Do you have one? Well, of course it was the one on spasticity, but I went back and listened to that. And in order to trim it down to the hour, cause I'm trying to keep them an hour or less, I sound like I'm on cocaine. Like I was on cocaine. I was like on the cocaine that comes from the from the adrenal gland. I was just on adrenaline. And it's, I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of that, I go, I'm really nervous about this one because I had so much I wanted to talk about. So I apologize for um, that. But yeah, that I think spasticity, it, it hedges on things about learned non-use. It hedges on things with regard to the timing of treatment. It hedges on a big controversy. I like controversies or whether stretching even helps this stuff. So yeah, I think that was, that was mine. Uh, let me see. I wonder if I can get, well, I'm th- I guess I'm guessing that yours is learn non-use. Is that your favorite episode? I really do like that one, but I also liked the one how repetition rules recovery because we talked about a study. It looked at therapist confidence levels in pushing survivors to do more. And we learned that when they used that graded exercise test, which had step counters and heart rate monitors, as long as they knew that they weren't hurting the survivors, they felt better at encouraging them to do more. And I do think that sometimes our own fears get in the way of of helping as much as we could. So I did like that one too. I think there's a lot in that one about therapist empowerment. So we learned also that having leadership engagement in a program or a protocol is important. Therapists also needing to know how to translate what the research says into building a protocol. And so after I listened to that one, I started thinking that I remember, oh gosh, one time we had a, a broken stool, you know, those four-wheeled stools that therapists sit on in the clinic. And there was a broken one and somebody sat on it. The The leg kind of caved in and they fell to the floor and they broke their tailbone. Wait, and a, that, a patient did that? No. A therapist. Ah, they know. broke their coccyx. They broke their coccyx. And, you know, we were talking about it afterwards and somebody 
said, you know, I knew that was broken and I just thought that it would get in the garbage. And in that moment, I realized that we are the ones that have to make these decisions. So whether it's throwing out broken equipment or starting something new, somebody has to make the decision to start it and say this, you know, get your research articles and say, who wants to help me do this and and just kind of do it. And then hopefully management will get on board with you. And if they don't, who's to say that you can't start using mirror therapy or create a, a bilateral training program? Who's to say that you can't make a little section in your clinic where people can do the um, circuit type of training? Did you just use a broken stool as a metaphor for a much more expansive discussion about using evidence base in your practice? <laughs> I might have. I really just wanted it. To, I want us to know that we're the ones that make the choices. So whether it's throwing out broken equipment or starting a program that works, we are the they. So in this metaphor, may I ask, what's the broken coccyx? Is that worse patient outcomes? Hmm. Okay. I, I, I get That's nothing. a broken system altogether. It is a broken it's a system. system that just stays broken and where you don't feel satisfied as a therapist and where your patients are not receiving like the best care that they could be receiving. Let me, let me ask you uh, a, a hypothetical. You're a patient, let's say. And you well, have, I have been a patient. You have been a patient. Mm -hmm. We're not going to say whether you were a good patient or a bad patient, but you have been a patient. And, and so, you, so um, would you rather have the really good therapist who went to the Harvard School of uh, Physical and Occupational Therapy? There's not one, but that's the school they went to. And just everybody loves this therapist. They're really good. They're clean. They look like a therapist. They're very, they're athletic themselves. And they, they you know, they have a, and they have a doctorate in this and a doctorate. Do they wear a white lab coat? They wear a white lab coat, but sometimes they come in and they, and they have just the, the whole thing where, um, that whole upper middle classy thing that therapists often have where it's like athletic wear, but it's like expensive athletic wear. Uh, trust me, I know what the way that therapists dress because when you're doing talks in hotel ballrooms and there's 73 other ballrooms that also have talks and you see the therapists wandering around trying to figure out what's the heck room they're supposed to be in, I can pick them out from a hundred yards. They're always dressed. It's I would call it upper middle class sporty chic. That's where I put it. Now, the, you can almost delineate the OTs. They're a little bit more flowy. Maybe there's some things dangling off. The The PTs are very structured and they got spandex and they're, they got the you know North Face jacket on. And, yeah. and I've had to do this so much. Anyway, so I digress. Okay. So what was I talking about? Well, I'm the patient. You're the patient. And, and would I rather have? Would you rather have the super therapist who went to the greatest school and has multiple doctorates, but doesn't read the research? Or the schlub guy who shows up late and he's got a coffee stain on his white lab jacket where he's thrown over his chair and you're not even sure what he's saying half the time, but he reads the evidence and implements it clinically. Yeah, I'd take that scruffy guy. And the reason he has coffee on his shirt is because he's reading the research while he's drinking his coffee, thinking about the interventions that he's going to do with you today. Mm. And that's why he spills the coffee. Yeah, as long as he doesn't spill you, I think I yeah. would agree. I would prefer to have the person who aligns their treatments with the research as best as they can. Look, at it. <laughs> we, if we've learned one thing 
from COVID, but also from this podcast, science really doesn't know. But that's okay. That doesn't mean that we're not closer to the truth than somebody who kind of makes it up from stuff they learned in school 20 years ago that was taught to them by somebody who learned that stuff 20 years before that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would. I think I'd, I'd uh, also uh, take the schlubby guy. Yeah. yeah, but I would prefer to know what he's saying. So hopefully he'll learn to get a little bit articulate. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I did uh, work in a lot of places in New Jersey and it's very international there. Uh, the first PT I worked with was Filipina. She was mm-hmm. great. Her name was Susan. And I worked with at the VA, I worked with some Egyptian guys and I couldn't tell what they were saying half the time. Mm-hmm. So language can be a problem. It can be. Another one that did really well was mirror therapy. Mm-hmm. And I think it didn't hurt that we had kind of an expert on it, somebody who really know, knew how to articulate it in a way that I wouldn't have been able to. And because mirror therapy shows up so much in the episodes about stuff that does work and in the spasticity episode and a whole bunch of other stuff and clinicians like it. So I get why that one did well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the subluxation and shoulder pain had over 300. That one had 302. So I think, you know, that's another one that did really well. And I think it's because you explained what to do for it. Subluxation and shoulder pain one? Mm-hmm. What, where did I explain? Remind me. Well, you talked about E-STEM. We talked about the different, not, well, the muscles and the- um, Electrode placements? And electrode placements and the um, slings. <laughs> oh my gosh, I got the different the slings. slings. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. We, we talked about that. the different slings and um, yeah, but the electrode placement- and in that episode, we also talked about positioning. So making sure that the arm is in a good position and to not, not yank on it, which is, I think that's a chronic education piece. I see that in a lot of Facebook groups. And I know it was always a concern where I worked educating staff on proper handling of a limb and positioning of a limb when the person's in bed to prevent damage. And I don't know, I just never really feels or seems like it goes anywhere. And I don't know if that's because there's high turnover in skilled nursing. There's in the hospital, I know, like there were regular nurses, but then there would be always new nurses coming through. So I don't, I'm not sure what that's about. So that episode did well. And it sounds like you think it should have done well because they <laughs> clinicians could do better in that area a little bit. I think they want to know how to do better. And I think that was informative. Mm. That that's what I'm getting from all of this is that we're talking about things that inform practice and, and people find it helpful. And in doing so, maybe we can help people with brain injury as well, because yeah. you know they may have to do some of this stuff at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the other thing I was um, kind of noticing themes that came up in the different podcast episodes. And uh, of course, there's going to be themes because the body is interconnected. So it's not just one topic, one time, you know, like learn non-use came up in the um, sensation recovery because it, it will. Um, but we've talked a lot about home programs and reminding people and hopefully maybe sparking um, maybe a new way of doing practice where they start the home program more towards the beginning of therapy so that survivors have a solid plan when they leave to continue their recovery. And they feel a little more confident in, in that plan so that they're more likely to follow through. So HEP doesn't stand for hand and photocopies? No, we always thought it did. 
but now we've learned that it doesn't. And discharge is not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. And now you're hoping that they'll plateau again and again and again Mm -hmm. with these other smaller, but really very important, often very important plateaus that will take them from not working to working, from not walking to walking. And then they go back to the therapist and ask for a new plan for a new set of plateaus. Yeah. Hmm. And Kathy Spencer kind of talked about that super survivor, Kathy Spencer. She talked about making her own plan because she was like that. But, you know, she got a lot of good therapy too. So she knew what to do and she just kept implementing it and didn't accept failure as an outcome. Yeah. I I listened to a little bit of her stuff today. And one of the things she said was, well, after my stroke, I went to RIC, Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, because it was the best. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, not everybody has access to uh, those kinds of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think locally, there are always really good therapists. It's just connecting those people with the really good therapists. And sometimes that's that's hard to do because you you don't know where they work. You know what we should have? We should have a very good therapist list. We should. Maybe we'll get that from the Facebook group. I wonder what would our criterion be? Because sometimes it's true that if they have this certification or that certification that they are, but I'm not super sure that's always true. And we might leave out some, so how we couldn't do it. How would you measure? You know, that's what we should do an episode about. We should do, how do you know a good therapist? How do you recognize a good therapist? Uh, and I have a subchapter in my book, and I've done some blog entries about this that, you know, how do you recognize it? And and one of the key ones was, um, so do you read the research? You know, or if you say, have you heard of constraint-induced therapy? Yeah, I've heard of it. Um, do you do that? Well, we really haven't. Um, oh, we I mean, can't. This is, we can't because there's no follow through on the unit. Well, that wouldn't be their fault then. And that wouldn't make them a bad therapist or does it? Is this, are we going to go back to the stool and the breaking of the coccyx and how that's a metaphor for a broken system generally, or it's just a broken system. We've been very conditioned to thinking that things have to be done a certain way. You know, one of my fieldwork educators was just, she was so smart and I loved watching her work when I was a student because somebody would come in and she would just, all of a sudden she'd be making something and she'd be doing this and she'd be doing that. Well, and then she'd try it. And then, you know, she just would watch and all of a sudden she'd be saying, you know, let's do it this way. And um, she just wasn't afraid. She wasn't afraid to make something and she lived a lot in her head, but um, I learned so much from her. Well, what does that mean if you live a lot in your head? It sounds scary. It's like, just like you could always tell she was just thinking all the time because you could talk to her and she wouldn't even hear you because she oh. was just thinking so much about what to do. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good sign. If a therapist is, gets down on their knees to a, and pulls out a wrench to adjust that thing so it's better for you to do whatever that sort of activity, you know, it's a stressful job therapy mm-hmm. and it's getting more stressful, unfortunately. It can and- be as simple as something, Pete, like if somebody's not comfortable, if they're using a wheelchair, they have a cushion and they're not comfortable, it can just be swapping out the cushion. That can make somebody a good therapist too. It could be the ability to sense based on somebody's facial expression that they're uncomfortable in the first mm-hmm. place. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think a lot of people have the desire to be a good clinician. 
But I sometimes think that the team that you work with will either help you be a good clinician or make it very difficult for you to be. So clinic culture plays a role in that. And that's one of the things that I see as a challenge right now with the way that a lot of these clinics are so busy with productivity that there's um, there's not a lot of time for mentoring, you know, from the more seasoned clinicians mentoring the younger ones or the newer ones. Not everybody's young. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot going on there. Uh-huh. So can I talk about something else? Another episode? Well, it was the sensation recovery one. Oh, was that a good one? I don't know. I thought it was a good one. Sensation. I'll tell you one thing. That was one of the most downloaded episodes. 284. It's, it was in the top uh, top five. Most okay. Definitely. So, yeah. I really appreciated that one. Um, and it just made me, like, remember we were talking about how when there's motor recovery, it will improve sensation. And if we work on sensation, that can help improve the motor recovery. Yeah. Am, and saying, it, that, am I saying that right? I think so. And then okay. they're so inexorable that if you're doing one, you're really doing both. Mm-hmm. So it's a twofer. And it just made me remember about the importance of having an enriched environment and giving people those opportunities to move and interact. And I know sometimes, um, sometimes people are afraid to get people who've had a stroke up or they're not quite sure how to move them, transfer them. But it it really is that movement. It's the action. It's the interaction in these meaningful activities. And so I just kind of wanted to encourage people to find someone that they work with who knows how to safely transfer people and just practice doing it so that it's not so nerve wracking for you because people need to move. Their bodies need to move to recover. And recovery of movement as well as recovery of sensation. And you're saying that this all goes back to the fact that maybe you don't feel real confident in moving Mr. Smith Mm -hmm. to a position where he can move. And so maybe that kind of feeds back on whether or not he's going to gain movement and sensation recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I remember being a new therapist and it was scary. Was scary for me to do it, but I just I had I always had really good therapists to work with who would help me. And eventually you get a level of confidence and you know when to ask for help. You know, you don't do it in a way that's going to be unsafe for you and the survivor. You get the proper help to do it. And um, you know, that's another thing. We started, we got the no lift equipment at our hospital, and that was really beneficial for the rehab department, because we could use that equipment to help mobilize people um, more safely and protect our bodies. And I think that, um, I think it gives the patients, the survivors, a level of confidence as well. So uh, I remember reading this study, I may have mentioned this to you before, it was like 5,000 nurses and they did MRI scans of their back, just their back. And they literally couldn't find any that didn't have some damage. Mm -hmm. So this no lift technology that you're talking about is a movement. You were in a hospital, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. In movement, especially in hospitals where you have machines that make it so that the therapist or the, or the doctor or the nurse or whoever Mm -hmm. never has to use their back to pick up a human 
And some of these humans can be 350 and upwards pounds. And, and even if they're not, it's not easy picking up a human, even if you have help. And mm-hmm. so, and if you do that 30 times a day, uh, you, you're asking for problems. So that mm-hmm. could get in the way of treatment as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just freaking, it's a technology, you know? It is I mean? a technology. And I know when we first got it, people were very resistant to it. And um, I kind of was like, why are we resisting this? Because working in the ICU with people who had some pretty dense strokes that we were still mobilizing, we had the overhead lifts there. And you could literally use the lift to transition somebody from supine to sit. And when we first got it, it was kind of challenging, wondering, is this really a skilled service that I'm providing? But I was able to wrap my head around it and figure out that Yes, it was because it was like having a third set of hands. So there were always the two of us together, but using that lift for somebody who was not able to help at all. We were able to help people sit at the edge of the bed and give their body that chance for rolling to position the sling and then to transition to sitting up and then to sit up for a while at the edge of the bed before transitioning them either back to bed or into a chair. I think that it really made all the difference in the world for mobilizing people who were sick. And I know I was able to leave at the end of the day, still having energy to do some stuff for myself. Can you define mobilization for the fine folks at home? You mean like the early mobilization that we did? Yeah. Is is mobilization always ambulation or can it be moving in other ways? Yeah, it can be moving in other ways. So, um, You know, a lot of times when people first have a stroke and they're on a ventilator, before early mobility programs came about, they were just in bed. They would just leave them in bed and maybe roll them from side to side or sit them up if the bed, the head of the bed went up. But um, once early mobility came around, we started rolling people, um, having them actually participate. They would sit up at the edge of the bed. We would give them the opportunity to, um, you know, just be upright and weight shift, and then uh, moving from there to see if they could stand. And if somebody could stand, can they take a few steps? Can they pivot? There's a graded protocol, and there are different protocols out there, but it really is a way to get people moving faster. And it's to prevent pneumonia. It's to prevent delirium because mobility helps to prevent delirium. And delirium, you know, some people never recover from that. So, it's, it's a good program. And I've had different physicians come up to me somewhere along the line. We used to have a doctor oversee our intensive care unit. And then they started using um, different doctors, traveling doctors. And I would have different doctors come up to me and say, you know, your program really works. And the reason it works is because you get people up and moving here. And they had been to other hospitals where they didn't do that. And it makes a difference. So it saves the hospital money, but it also helps people in their recovery from whatever is happening. Yeah. From whatever. And -hmm. it it could be cancer. It could be heart disease. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I told you this story before. There's a guy came up to me during a talk and during the break and talking. And he said to me, um, I worked in Africa and I forget where, I want to say the Ivory Coast. And he he volunteered for a few months there. And he said the hospital was ginormous. Like, I think he said like 4,000 beds. It was just huge. And he said that every day 
everybody that could possibly got up and walked for as much as they could. And they would go in a second time. So there would be two rounds of these walking for everybody. And, you know, this is anecdotal and it's not evidence-based. He said the outcomes were really quite remarkable. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard people say or ask, um, so we had OT and PT doing early mobility and well, they still do. It's not gone away. Um, and I've had nurses say to me, you know, can you get Mrs. Jones up? Yes. Can you help me? I don't have anybody to help me right now. And I've literally had nurses say to me, well, no offense, but if PT, why do you need to do it if PT can do it? Well, because we overlap in that instance, but I can still have occupational therapy goals with those people but we're both capable of mobilizing. We're both capable of sitting people up. And if I'm the one that you have right now, then why would you not want to help me? But I think understanding what the goals are in the ICU, you know, it's not really to go home and do the dishes right now today. Right now today, we have to see where you're at right now and help get you better from where you are now. And if if we can get you sitting up, if we can get you to stand, if we can get you to take a few steps to a chair, if you can walk for a little bit, then we can help you get stronger for those other more functional things. Yeah. I wonder if the motivation of the nurse at that point was, I don't want to help you. It, oh, I'm, that was the motivation a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. So there was another episode that we had. It was called Motor Learning Simplified. And this rounds out the, the top five. And in that, I kind of made this point, which I've always loved to make, which is that therapists are absolutely in the best position to leverage a lot of the stuff that neuroscience says works. So for instance, um, if you talk about repetitive practice, well, who does repetitive practice? Therapists do. In ambulation, you automatically do it. OTs do it as well. It Maybe they don't do it enough. Maybe they don't do it the sort of, you know, I think we talked about 1,200 repetitions being the baseline for a couple of things to happen. One, that there's changes in the brain, and two, that there's changes in terms of the amount of movement. So maybe they don't do enough, but they do it. So neuroscience says, hey, we came up with this new thing. It's called repetitive practice. And then they look down that long hallway and they see therapists having done it for the last you know, 100 years or whatever it is. Um, well, we, we have this other thing. It should be very challenging. It's got, I, so for some reason, I'm making them sound like a, you know, shyster lawyer from the Bronx or something. We got another thing. It should be challenging right on the edge of their ability. You got to chip away at the edge of their abilities. You don't grow unless you go to the end of this. Maybe I'm doing Bill Burr. I think I'm doing Bill Burr, which is a comedian. You probably, do you know who that is? No, I yeah. don't. That's his voice. He's got this voice. Um, okay. <laughs> so then they look down the long hallway. Who's doing challenging? Well, therapists have already mm -hmm. always said that. Um, it should be meaningful. It should be very meaningful. You have to attract the mind. It's not just about the brain. The brain is the machine that carries out what the mind wants. So make it meaningful. Who does that? Therapist. Well, it should involve exercise because exercise pumps the brain full of brain-derived neurotropic factor, which then makes motor learning easier. So it should be that should do exercise. Who does that? Oh, therapist. Damn therapist. They're down every hallway that we think we invented. They're already there. And then you talked about um, enriched environments. You know, exercise is a form of enrich enrichment of environment. And often, like the intimacy between the therapists 
and the survivor is the biggest dose of intimacy that they get all day long. Probably mm-hmm. less true in hospitals, but in skilled nursing, it can be the the biggest thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the family shows up for a while, but then they kind of get bored of it and they don't show up. And now the therapist is the person who's really in contact, even more than the nursing. Well, you know, it, that's a good point that you're bringing up. And you have you make that relationship very quickly because if you don't, it, it doesn't work. I don't know. I mean, that was something I had to learn how to do. Yeah. So how, so what? any tricks for how to make that relationship happen quick and fast? And I wonder if it's just honesty is probably the first thing, letting them know that you're a human and uh, what else? Being real, just, you know, being your authentic self. And I think genuineness, people know if you care or not. And um, yeah, I like the honesty piece. Like I'll always, I, I have no problem telling somebody if, you know, I'm not here to make you do this because, you know, every once in a while you get that person who's not motivated for whatever reason and just having the heart to heart with them. You know, there are a lot of different reasons. But once I think for me, once I figured out that I could just be myself and always tell people what I'm there to do. And I remember reading one time, if you sit down and are eye to eye with people and listen, then they think that you gave them good care. And I thought, wow, that's so easy. So you just sit down, you listen to what they have to say, and you move along and get them going. And I don't know. Yeah. The standing up means, okay, especially in PT means I want you to stand up now. We're going to work on standing up. Then we're going to work on walking. Meanwhile, you haven't talked to the person. Yeah. And, you know, I I will say therapists are under a lot of time pressure. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that's exactly what they're doing. They're getting in, they want to get in, they want to get out, get their notes written and, you know, move on to the next patient. But uh, it's worthwhile. You know what? The patients are not ignorant of that. They know. Yeah. They know. They know what's going on. They do know what's going on. Any other episodes you want to talk about? Let's see. We got the what works and what doesn't work. What doesn't work didn't score very highly. What does work did a little bit better. And that makes sense. Uh, Who wants to hear about what doesn't work? Well, I mean, sometimes you need to know if what you're doing isn't what you should be doing. Yeah, that's true. It's a bitter pill. It is Um, a bitter pill. Yeah. Um, I took some notes on neuroplastic beats spastic. How did that one do? When did we do that one? There it is. 264. Yeah, it's it's not bad. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, Spasticity is sort of like a, a niche. Talk more about that. Well, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's hard to get your head around and you got to kind of think about it a lot. And mm-hmm. then as we mentioned, there's a lot of conflicting stuff, you know, does stretch work? Does stretch not work? What about splinting? Things that people are committed to because they were taught to be committed mm-hmm. to them and maybe those don't work so well. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of something that I think that you need to like doing in order to get your head around it. it there's a lot of upfront work. And then the measurement is mm-hmm. out of, it's not the Berg balance and it's not, you know, the, the 10 minute walk to six minute walk test. It's not the timed up and go. It's not the stuff that we typically do. So you gotta, mm-hmm. you have to have this little, little bit different skill set. Yeah. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe. Well, I'm hoping that that episode helped people to start to think about it and feel a little bit more comfortable treating it. Um, so one of the things that you had talked about was using e-stim with a reciprocal inhibition. And um, then you were talking about your, your um, 
your spastic, your spasticity model. And with the the ball, like letting people flex the ball to fatigue the flexors, no, to strengthen the flexors. So here's my question. This is where I, I got ahead of myself. So they're strengthening the flexors, but as they're doing that, are they fatiguing them as well so that they could engage the extensors? So the reason that you do a lot of repetitions into finger flexion is to reestablish brain control over the flexor. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about strength, it's the strength of the neuronal firepower to control those flexors. Mm-hmm. That's the whole reason. Do you fatigue the flexors? Yeah. And there's like, usually if you say why, like I used to often show this animated gif of a hand squeezing a ball over and over again. And I would say, I think this reduces spasticity. Why do you think it does? And they'd say, well, it fatigues the flexors. Now, fatiguing the flexors will reduce spasticity, but it's very short term. They may have that day and maybe in the next day if they have some weakness, but eventually it's going to come back. And in fact, most of the neurofacilitation folks would say, you're strengthening the overwhelmingly strong flexors and you're just going to make the spasticity worse, which is not true, but it's this old guard perspective on things. But yes, there would be a short-term impact of fatiguing the flexors. And then you could jump off of that a little bit as well. But no, the whole idea is to reestablish brain control over those flexors. Remember, the extensors are also spastic. It's Mm -hmm. just they can't assert themselves because they're so overwhelmed by these the the guy fat guy next door. The finger flexors are so much stronger than the finger Mm -hmm. extensors. Yeah. Well, that's just how my brain starts working. So if you have a ball that has some bounce, like not bounce, but give to it so that it opens the hand so that you can squeeze it again, that's really what you're looking for. You're not looking for something hard for them to squeeze, but not something that's so soft, it doesn't open the hand up again to give them the other opportunity, the opportunity to flex again. That's exactly, that's the way I'd look at it. Because unless it opens up the hand enough to do another repetition, you're mm-hmm. kind of sunk with one repetition because now the yeah. ball squished, it's in the death grip, you can't go anywhere. So it's a fine balance. And you know, you, it seems to me you could go to a dollar store and get 10 different kinds of balls and find all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you did ask about e-stim and reciprocal inhibition. There's two ways to look at e-stim. One is the, actually a neuroplastic model, and it's hypothetical at best, but I like it. I still like it. And the other is you activate the reciprocal muscles. So if you're going to w- want to work on the finger flexors, you would e-stim the finger extensors, and that would reciprocally inhibit the finger flexors. And once you take it off, you have about 15 minutes to a half an hour of reduced finger flexion spasticity. Um, By the way, reciprocal innervation leads to reciprocal inhibition. That's Sir Charles Sherrington. One of the guys we talked about as a a sort of precursor to a lot of the neurofacilitation stuff, but he was a brilliant guy, won a Nobel. That's one way to use Easton. So you Easton the muscles opposite of the ones that you want to work on for, you know, you put it on there for 15 minutes or so and you reduce spasticity. The other option though, is the neuroplastic model. And that's where you would e-stim the flexors because e-stim hypertrophies the portion of the brain where the electrodes are. And so the therapist or the survivor, whoever decides what part of the brain they want to hypertrophy. And so you could use that as an adjunct to reestablish brain control over flexors by e-stimming the flexors. I think that's helpful for people to know, especially those people who are 
wanting to learn more about eSTEM, maybe this will um, just, you know, give them the nudge that they need to learn more about it and start using it in clinic. So I think we may have been through most of the episodes. I wonder what you see as the future of noggins and neurons and how do you think it's it's going to change? And like we did have an intro episode where we actually laid down a really good constitution, like the American constitution for the way that it was going to unfold. And it kind of, as I remember, it kind of worked. We -hmm. wanted to be agents of change. I remember that was your line. Mm -hmm. Um, We wanted to talk about evidence and, and, and so we nailed a lot of it. Do you see any, what are the biggest changes you think in the next 20 episodes? Wow. That's like the million dollar question. Um, hmm. Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Which is the way that's clear? Well, I think one thing that's really important are the the trading cards, because we haven't talked about those in a while. And that's kind of fun. Um, Well, we have some guests lined up. And, you know, my hope is that this is opening a whole new world for me. Because I'm not a researcher, and I don't think most of us are researchers. So I think it'll be fun to hear how this conversation goes, probably mostly with you and them. Um, Who's the them? I think I'm the me. Robert Robert Tissell and that the other person that's going to join him. Oh, Marcus, and I forget Mm -hmm. his last name. And then we have Dr. Jones. Teresa Jones. Teresa Jones. She's next week. Yeah. And I just think that um, I'm curious to see how it's what it's going to spark inside of me, inside of my brain, and how I will be thinking about occupational therapy, teaching occupational therapy, um, serving other occupational therapists. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think the, the big thing that I learned is that we really need guests. I think mm-hmm. they, they help, they enrich the uh, the conversation in a way that's unpredictable, and that's kind of the scary part of it. But mm-hmm. that's also the really good part. And you know, especially it, it's easy to say, but the NeuroHub OT folks, uh, Duro and Lynette, just you know, that was really great and just invigorating. It also gives mm-hmm. us a little bit of a break from listening to our own voice. Mm-hmm. But I wonder. I almost want to like start a book called the chapters of this, like I think we should do in the future more of these sort of coalescing mm-hmm. all of that, the things that we learned. I'm not sure how well we're going to do it with this episode, but yeah. in the future that we, every once in a while, we get back to everything that we learned just to remind everybody, Yeah, you know, repetition, as you point out, is a good thing. Uh, so maybe those two things, more guests, quality guests, mm-hmm. people that really are, are at the top of their game. I think that's pretty, yes. pretty important. And we have Maria scheduled for a local from a local hospital here where I live, who's going to be talking about driver rehabilitation and driver evaluations. And I think, I know for me on the clinical side of things, I like hearing what other people are doing and how they're doing it because it helps inform my practice because we're not doing this alone. And and things are always better when you have the like the meeting of the minds where you get inspirations from people have who have well-established practices. The other person that's coming 
is Mary Warren. She, a lot of these people don't want to do it until September because they're, you know, they're Mm -hmm. on vacation and stuff, but uh, she's a vision expert. So we're looking forward to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to learning. It's always, um, what's the right way to say it? Like a little intimidating to not, to hear what it is that I don't know, but I also get excited when I find out there's more to know and there's always more to know and learn and see where we can take this. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other episodes that you wanted to talk about? Well, Pete, are we going to like talk about the Facebook group? Well, we could talk about it now and then cut it if it doesn't bring us anywhere and they see our usual idiotic ramblings, but it may, <laughs> okay. it may end up being kind of cool. And we would like to announce the fact that we have a Facebook group now <laughs> and you should join it and you'll find it on Facebook and it's called Noggins and Neurons. Yeah. We are starting a Facebook group, a Noggins and Neurons Facebook group. And, and how many people are in that? How many members do we have so far? So far we have two. Two. And do we know these people? <laughs> Just we barely. do. We do a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's you and me. Okay. So that's where we are with that. Yeah. So we would like to invite people to join our Noggins and Neurons Facebook group. It's a closed Facebook group. So what is said in the group stays in the group and it's a group to help each other. Yeah, absolutely. To maybe a big discussion group where we could talk about stuff, whether it's complaining about stuff at work that you don't like about managed care or you don't like about you know, maybe not get personal, but maybe you don't like about the system. Or if you mm-hmm. want to talk about the best treatment for increasing gate speed, I mean, a- any technical stuff, and we'll try to chime in and, and help you out, but we would hope that we would learn as much as anybody else does. Yeah. And even where people can get clarification on things, kind of like, you know, I seek sometimes. Yeah, we all do. What what differentiates us from all the other neuro OT and PT uh, groups. How are we different? Well, first of all, it's us. So, so there's going to be inherent differences. There, yeah. 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 Um, we invite everybody. We invite therapists and survivors and caregivers and students. Ooh, that is different. Mm-hmm. And um, I think just the, I think it will be a nice community of people who are hoping to learn from each other and will feel confident sharing things that they try and just helping to kind of, I think maybe helping to do what we're hoping to do, affect change in the way services are delivered. And I think if you're a survivor or a caregiver, then getting some insight into the therapy end of things and being able to advocate for yourselves and knowing what to advocate for and helping us too, like helping us understand what it's like living with that injury, like the lived experience of it. And so we can maybe do better when we're delivering our services. Yeah. So the fact that there will be survivors involved, that is a big difference. And I mm-hmm. hadn't thought that, but that's who, exactly who we should invite as well as as uh, clinicians, as well as caregivers, as well as students, whoever, Yeah. Um, and get that three-dimensional perspective. And maybe ours will have a little bit more of a political with a small P, maybe uh, just this idea of how does healthcare impact recovery from brain injury. Mm-hmm. And that that would be helpful. So we'd have yeah. the advocacy thing. We'd also have a, a little bit of this political thing. But then the other thing is we have the podcast in mm-hmm. which we can take ideas that we learned on the Facebook page and express them on the podcast and 
take the stuff on the podcast and express it on the Facebook page. So it might, might mm-hmm. have a real symbiotic thing. So join up kids. It's the Facebook page. It's called Noggins and Neurons. Go figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see you there. And uh, yeah, well, maybe we should sign off and get something to eat and just go to bed, go to bed, <laughs> go to bed. It is pretty late. Mm-hmm. It's almost 10 o'clock uh, as we're recording this. Yeah. So that's, that's good. a good talk. Yeah, absolutely. I hope our listeners think it's a good talk. We'll find out by those numbers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all. We live and die by the numbers. Yeah. We're social media, uh, whatever. Addicts. Addicts. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Like the little, little rat addicted to cocaine who keeps just pushing the lever over and over. We have to have higher numbers. No, we don't. You know what? I'm happy to have an exclusive group. This group. Don't forget to join our Facebook uh, group and you will be one of the few, the proud, and uh, and and then we can have another way of communicating. Yeah, I am hoping that people want to join that and I'm looking forward to meeting some of these amazing therapists and survivors and caregivers and maybe even students, you know, who, who we interact with. Yeah, that's right. On this students. one-sided relationship we've got going on here. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's going to be two-sided because you and I are going back to school here in just a few yeah. weeks. Shh. Enjoy it while you can. Maybe I want to think about it. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks. That was fun. Thanks, Dave. That was. Thanks, Pete. Okay, we'll see you guys next time or listen to you. Or wait, you'll listen to us next time. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>